Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Today is Father's Day and our call to confession is from Proverbs chapter 4, where Solomon speaks to his sons and instructs them in wisdom. Proverbs 4. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Solomon is teaching his children with these proverbs. God here to us is showing himself a father to his children. We must learn first to be taught by the Lord in his word before we can teach and parent our own children. We all learn by imitation and example. Over time, children pay attention to what their parents give attention. And that's why Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, for example. Pay attention. Listen to what God says. It's getting harder and harder, it seems, in our day to give attention in this world of Netflix and Facebook and texts and tweets. Are we giving God the attention that he deserves? Are we teachable? Are we willing to change according to his word? He gives us good instruction, good doctrine in his word, and we cannot forsake it. So let's confess our own sins now before Almighty God. The story is told of a young boy who came home from church and His sick mother asked him what the sermon was about. And the boy said, it was about sin. Oh, mom replied, what did he say about it? And the boy shot back quickly, he was against it. That's what we have today. We have a picture of sin in the church and God opposing it and purifying his people. So today we see the theme is Uh, that we need to root out compromise and hypocrisy and cling to the gospel amidst persecution. I'm going to kind of hone in on the compromise part and the hypocrisy part. Uh, That's the application for us today. Uh, The solution, of course, being the, the simple, basic gospel. So let's look first at the The compromise. Jumping all the way back to verse 32, we took quite a bit of text today. Verse 32, we see first the church's faithfulness and generosity described. Uh, In verse 33, we see the the apostles are continuing uh, to give witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the basic thing the apostles are doing. They're witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. We'll see that more as we go on. The apostles, the, the, not just the apostles, the church, verse 32 and verse 34, that have all things in common. 
And this is one that always kind of disturbs us a little bit because it sounds politically socialist or communist or something to us, right? Uh, I would point out that this is an attitude and this is a, a tendency, not a, a legal requirement that's given. All right, the apostles aren't mandating this. This is something that's voluntarily happening. It's not obligatory on all. Peter says later to Ananias, he says, when it was yours, you could do with it what you wanted to. So this isn't undoing private property or anything like that. But this, this was a generous spirit and attitude among the church that whatever anyone had, if someone else had greater need for it, they would willingly give. That's the idea. So it's an attitude. It's not obligatory on all. It's not a mistake either to overflow with generosity. And that's what's going on. So one way to think of this is to think of it you know, from the political state view. The state often tries to do this. Right? The totalitarian mindset is to say, okay, you're, everything that you have is the state's, and we're going to take it all and then give to everybody freely. What that, what that is is the state being a counterfeit god. Right? The state is being a counterfeit god. They're trying to mandate and trying to uh, make this happen, try, trying to make an ideal society by their own means. So that's not good. But we're so opposed to state socialism that we often avoid these scriptures that commend and call for generosity. We really ought to be seeking this spirit. Whatever I have, it's, it's, it's not... I mean, legally, it's my own. Sure, fine. Private property and all that. But if anyone has need, I'm going to give generously. That's, that's the attitude we ought to have. Barnabas is given as an example of this uh, in verse 36 and 37. Uh, so Barnabas is, is the example of that. And I just wanted to point out... Huh, I didn't even get this in my notes. <laughs> Barnabas is a Levite. Notice, verse 36. So uh, he has uh, land as a Levite. Now, if you think back in the Old Testament, that's quite important, that a Levite with land. You don't give up that land. That's God-given land. That, that's critical, right? We, we don't, if you're a dispensationalist, you think this way, but we don't think this way anymore. It, the, the land of Israel is not sacred uh, although in the Old Testament, they were forbidden from selling their land because God had given it to them. So there's something very unique that's happening here. And uh, what's happening is um, it, what you have here is a parallel to Joshua. This is why we read from Joshua 7 today. In Joshua, uh, Israel enters the land, right? Right? Here in Acts, uh, there, there's a New Testament Joshua going on. Joshua is the first book after the Pentateuch. Acts is the first book after the four Gospels. There's a parallel. And what's going on is that uh, God is bringing his people into the land spiritually. Uh, he's, he's given them power by the Spirit to be his witnesses. Uh, the Great Commission is, is beginning to happen. Uh, just as the Old Testament version of that was Joshua taking the land. Uh, and so uh, what you have here is, uh, is a conversion, a New Testament uh, tran translation of that, where the land is now given up 
and is given to the apostles. The, the apostles are given the proceeds of the land, of the Levite. It's fascinating. More on that in a moment, perhaps. But let's, let's move on. So Barnabas is, is an example of the generosity, and there's also that uh, Joshua kind of mindset here, where, where the land, uh, the proceeds of the land are given to the apostles. Now, in verse, the next uh, 11 verses of chapter 5, here, here we have the compromise of hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira come, and they keep some of the proceeds of the land that they sell for themselves. Now, on the surface, it looks like their sin is not giving as much as Barnabas did. We're not giving it all, right? They didn't give the whole amount. But that isn't the problem. Ananias and Sapphira lie about how much they sold the property for. Their sin is one of trying to look better, look like they're doing more than they're actually doing, right? They're saying, no, we sold it for 100000 when they actually sold it for 50000 and kept 50000 or whatever the amount is. You see that? They want everyone to think that they're giving everything that they sold. Just like, every, just like Barnabas did. When actually they're keeping some of it for themselves. It, it's a sin of lying and hypocrisy. They want that prestige. They want that reputation without the actual sacrifice. That's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. Now, somehow, supernatural knowledge is given to the, Peter to know this by the Holy Spirit, to know for sure how much they really sold the land for. And this brings up a, a difference between the apostles' time and our own, right? Sometimes we get inclinations or promptings from the Spirit, right, that, that someone is troubled, or like Peter knew here that something was off. But we need to prove that with more ordinary questions and hard evidence, Right? The apostles didn't. They spoke in the Spirit with dramatic results. People are healed. People fall dead on the spot. This is a unique occurrence in the book of Acts. Right? So we need to distinguish and say that the Spirit worked by revelation to the apostles here and in writing Scripture. And the Spirit works in us differently by illumination, giving us understanding and guidance but there's not this infallible, supernatural thing going on that, we, that the apostles have. Anyway, so Peter, by the Spirit's revelation, Peter knows there's hidden sin in Ananias. And he emphasizes, verse 3, how unnecessary this was. He, he, literally, he specifically says, you didn't have to sell the whole thing. You didn't have to give it all. And you didn't have to lie about it. So when we're too concerned with keeping up appearances, then things have to be a certain way, right? We have to look good. We have to put ourselves in the tight straitjacket we put ourselves in. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. This is a key point I want to bring to you this morning. Genuine community does not have this pressure of appearing so uber pious all the time. That's what Ananias and Sapphira are missing. You, you don't always have to one-up the biggest public sacrifice that's been made. 
right? People overly concerned with their reputation and appearance, they cannot obey Galatians 5.1. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You, you wound up in this tight straitjacket when you think you have to keep up appearances and reputation. They're bound, Ananias and Sapphira, they're bound to the opinions of men, trying to control every last detail of what others think of them. That's something we need to run from. It's unnecessary because God is your judge. When people come to repentance for their past sins and grieve over them, this is one thing that the penitent feels in his grief. All this sin, this hypocrisy, or this chasing after a good reputation, it's so unnecessary. And so Peter points this out. Verse 4, he says, After it was sold, was it not your own? Why have you conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And a verse later, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Or a verse earlier, actually, verse 3. So Peter here, he redirects hypocrites from regarding the favor of men to regard God's will more. Regard God's will more. You've lied to God. In trying to get the favor of people, you wound up lying to God. That's a, a key point this morning. There, there, uh, as an aside, it's, I don't know if it's an aside is the right word. This is a main, this is a big deal. This is a proof text, verse 3 and 4, um, for the deity of the Holy Spirit. It often comes up in, in presbytery exams, those kinds of things. You, you've lied to God, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, he says in one verse in, in succession after another. That assumes the personality of the Spirit. Notice. You can't lie to a principle. You can't lie to a force. Right? You can violate a principle. You can misuse or neglect the force, I suppose, if you want to think Star Wars kind of language. But you lie to a person. And Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. Sin is a personal offense against a personal God. We, I hear a lot of talk in conservative media today, um, Jordan Peterson comes to mind, about how when you, when you act wrongly, you're betraying yourself, right? You're going against your, your better instincts. There's several ways to put that. But all that is secular language. What's really going on is that you're, you're personally offending a holy God who made you. And, and that's very important to keep in mind. So, Ananias lies to the Holy Spirit. Sin hinders our prayers. It snuffs out our light. It, it clouds our witness to Christ's glory. And that's what's happening here. Ananias falls down dead, breathes his last. Great fear comes on them all. So, the, the gravity of the sin is highlighted here. Just like with Achan... In Joshua 7, it's the same, it's a parallel story, really. Achan also uh, is uh, condemned, and the wages of sin is death. 
Now, Sapphira is guilty, too. She's given a chance to repent. She doesn't. She lies like her husband. They had planned this together. Let's, let's tell everybody we sold it for this much. That, that kind of, of scheme. And that's something to think about. When, when you live in a family and one person starts acting sinfully, hypocritically, then the rest of the family has a choice to either join in the hypocrisy and live the lie with the rest or to expose it. And that's something that Sapphira could have done, and she doesn't. Sometimes sin is, I don't know if contagious is the right word there, but sin spreads like that. One person sins and keeps on sinning, and the rest just kind of play along. That's what's happening here. And again, this is like Achan's sin. Uh, Notice the parallel again, Acts and Joshua. Both of these sins happen as the church starts to carry out her mission. Right? there's There's a beginning of... Uh, taking the land. There's a beginning of uh, bearing witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, etc. Both of these sins, Achan and Ananias, they stop that mission in its tracks until it's dealt with. And God intervenes with both sins thoroughly to deal with it. And, and that's, that sounds like doom and gloom, but that's really grace because God deals with it. And then, then the church is cleansed, the, the church is disciplined, Hebrews 12. We see, oh, we don't want to go that way. God has taught us and shown us the right way and cleansed us. And now we can move forward. And, and that's what happens. They move forward. The punishment is severe so that the rest may fear. So uh, there is a time, to, of course, to let love cover a multitude of sins. And there's also a time to say, we are not going to live that way. And those aren't contradictory, right? We, we want to uh, maintain both of those. So what we need to have here is sincerity and honesty with each other. Back to the main application point. Like Ananias, uh, each of us are tempted from time to time to try to play super spiritual man to everybody else outwardly. You know, I could try to convince you that I'm up every morning at 5 a.m., praying until 7, reading my Bible until 8. But I struggle, like everyone else, to keep a consistent devotional life. You know, or think of another example. Our, our identity is pretty tied up in how our children behave and turn out. Right? But our children all sin and stumble as they grow. And that should not shock us or shame us. There's no technique that you can apply to prevent your children from ever sinning. Sin is just built into us and we fight it all our lives as Christians. And then when each of us has sin rise up, if we have convinced ourselves that we or our children are bizarre rebels, then that, that, that's, that's not going to go well for us. We need to be honest with each other. Not justifying sin, of course, but not leaving it undealt with either. But we don't want to be shocked by long battles with sin. We don't want to overly condemn ourselves or our children without the grace of God intervening. And that sin can be repented of. Think of the woman caught in adultery. There's, 
there's a kind of a contrasting situation to this one or to Achan, right? Uh, what consequences does Jesus impose on the woman caught in adultery? None. None. Go and sin no more. There are times that sin brings consequences. That's true. But there are times it does not as well in grace. The, the Father's discipline produces fruit, Hebrews 12, 11 says. That's, if, I would, if I would tell everybody today, what's the Father's Day scripture verse of the day? It's Hebrews 12, 11. Go home and read that for Father's Day today. Hebrews 12, 11. The peaceable fruit of righteousness that comes from a Father's discipline. That's what we're after. So, you have there the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 12, then you also have the growth of the church. Uh, chapter 5, verse 12, you see the description again of the signs and wonders being done, confirming the truth of their message. And it's interesting, verse 13, none of the rest dared join them. I find that fascinating. So the rest there, of course, meaning anybody hanging around the temple, those who are worshiping, the priests, your, your typical Israelite in Jerusalem who lives and worships there. And the church is gathering in Solomon's portico. That's one part of the temple. Uh, and, and everybody else is like, whoa. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of, we know who they are and something crazy is happening over there. And we don't really want to be a part of that. It's rather interesting why that is. You see that other places in Scripture where God is at work, and when God's at work, people naturally draw back. They're like, ah, I don't want to get close to that. And that's typical of sinners. We don't want to get close to the holy God. When Jesus does miracles, Peter or others would say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But many also believe, and they join them. Many are convinced. So that's the growth of the church. Then verse 17, you have the high priest rising up. And they decide something needs to be done here. So here again, you have opposition overruled. The leaders are indignant. The movement is growing as the apostles defy their orders not to speak of Jesus. And that defiance continues with God's blessing. They're imprisoned but they're supernaturally released, told to go into the temple and speak more. Later in Acts, uh, the Spirit tells uh, Paul, he, he says, to stay in a certain city. And he says, I have many people here. I, I love that phrase. I, it comes later in Acts, I, I think. Uh, I have many people in this city, so stay here and keep preaching the name. That's kind of the idea here. Keep speaking. All who are Christ's have not yet come to faith. Keep speaking. And that's a good exhortation for all of us. It's our situation today, too. Well, the leaders, verse 24, the apostles are out of jail in the morning. They just go right out and they're speaking again, right as the leaders are trying to arrest them and bring them before them. And, and, and so the phrase at the end of verse 24, I just love they wondered what the outcome would be, right? The leaders are supposed to be in control. But Luke here in Acts shows they're obviously not in control. 
they're just sitting there wondering what's going to happen. Because God is overruling what they're doing. The leaders can, they can dictate, they can command, they can imprison, they can even kill, but they cannot stop the gospel. And that's what the Spirit is showing. So you have another trial. Verse 27 to the end of the chapter is, is another trial. And the high priest says, didn't we tell you not to do this? So now they disavow any responsibility for killing Jesus. If you remember back in the gospel, they, in Matthew, they said, his blood be on us and our children. Right? At the trial of Jesus. And now, verse 27, 28, you're trying to bring this man's blood on us. So, so they're disavowing, they're taking that back. They're saying, oh, his blood's not on us. So I don't know quite what to make of that. There's, I think they're suppressing the truth there, right? Because they're starting to, it's starting to dawn on them, oh, all these signs and wonders. Maybe this Jesus is who they say he is. And, well, no, we didn't kill him. No, we didn't do that. No, no. So they're, they're suppressing the truth. The apostles' answer is to preach the gospel. Uh, I, you know, I usually choke up when I read scripture. And today it was verse 30 to 32. And that's because that's the elevator speech of the gospel. Um, you know, we always go to Acts 2 for the Pentecost sermon. That's classic gospel stuff, right? If you want the shortest description, summary of the gospel, we talk about the gospel. I, I, I talk gospel all the time here, right? What is the gospel actually? What is that? Verse 30 to 32. It's... It's a short, I forgot to count how many words. It's hardly 20 words. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's an astounding summary of the gospel. That is the core in three verses. I, I, I can't stop uh, raving about it. It's, 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 it, it's like John 3.16, only with more impact and more, more context. The gospel, right there, the elevator speech. So... The assumption in all of this that, that the apostles are making is that these rulers, the high priest, the whole Sanhedrin, they are under Jesus Christ's lordship and they won't admit it. And that's the sticking point, right? Was Jesus sent from God to be our king or not? And the answer for every earthly ruler is yes. The answer for every father on Father's Day, is yes. We often talk about in, in the state that, that presidents are, are bound and subject to Jesus Christ for how they behave. That's totally right. But we also need to remember that that works the other way too. It's not just in the state. That's in the family. As a, a father, as a parent, with authority in your home, you don't just have that authority on your own. You're bound and subject to Jesus 
for how you father and how you parent. And that's what we see here. Peter and John and the other apostles are calling the high priest to account for what they did. They murdered Jesus. So whether the leader is is Nero or Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden, rulers opposed to Jesus and his church are committing treason against their king. And Gamaliel takes an interesting turn. They're furious, they plot to kill them. And Gamaliel gets it stopped. He's a Pharisee, he's held in respect, he's known in, in secular history. Uh, and, and he takes a pragmatic turn, verse 34 and on. He advises restraint and hands off. Let him be, he says. In, in other words, the first uh, impulse of the Sanhedrin is to execute these apostles. And Gamaliel gets it stopped. Fascinating. He's not a believer. He's just a pragmatic, um, popular teacher. He says, if this movement is not of God, then they're going to scatter. We saw it with Judas. We saw it with Judas. He gives a few examples. It'll dissipate if it's not of God. And if it is of God, well, why would you want to stop that? Rather interesting argument that he makes. Uh, We should remember that Gamaliel is not speaking here an eternally true principle, I don't think. Uh, Many movements that are of God falter and dissipate. Uh, I would put before you um, Harvard and Yale as two examples. Those were great movements of God at the beginning. Wonderful uh, mission uh, and orthodox works that have been corrupted. Or other movements that are anti-God gain traction for a time. You know, think of Marx or Freud or, or Rousseau or Betty Friedan. These people have gained great followings in our day, even though their ideas are grossly unbiblical and anti-God. So Gamaliel's point is not that movements of God always succeed in the short term. That's not really what he's saying. His point is a very pragmatic one, that the Sanhedrin should just wait and see. If they're going to assert authority against the apostles when they've already shown they can't enforce it, well, that, that's not too smart. I would hold off from doing anything like that. That's almost always a bad idea. So that's Gamaliel. And so in response, they agree with Gamaliel. They beat them, I notice, in verse 40. We, we rush over that phrase sometimes. So they, they probably gave them the 40 lashes minus one, each of the apostles. And again, commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. So remember from last week, they, all they have is threats and ignoring. That's the two tactics. Uh, here comes a third tactic, which is physical force. They they physically beat them. And we see that sometimes uh, coming too down the pike in our current culture wars where there's uh, physical financial penalties for not going along with the current secular agenda. The apostles' response to this is just stunning. Verse 41 and 42. 
They depart from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The response to getting whipped and beaten is joy. And reverencing Christ's name. And they're going to continue to speak. Do you realize when James wrote the first part of his letter that he had already gone through what he exhorts his readers to listen to. Count it all joy when you face various trials. They remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I know I do this a lot, but I I just can't keep back again. Notice how out of sync that is with how we are trained to respond when our religious liberties are threatened. Our gut instinct, what the radio voices tell us, is to be outraged, hurl insults back. It's not what Jesus says at all. They count it all joy. They keep preaching the gospel. A few years back, I was introduced to a bishop from Uganda through R.C. Sproul. Uh, not personally, just on the radio. His name was Festo Kavinjere. And he had seen much persecution in his own life. And he gave this quote that I just found wonderful. It fits with other quotes from the church fathers. He said, Without bleeding, the church fails to bless. Without bleeding, the church fails to bless. And so the apostles here bleed. They're beaten. They're whipped. And they go forth rejoicing that they've suffered for the name. Well, let me conclude briefly here. Just I've got like an inch of application and then I'm done. Consistent clinging to the gospel by the apostles. That's the first thing. Regardless of how intense opposition gets. Consistent clinging to the gospel. Memorize verse 30 to 32. That's the gospel. Cling to that. That's number one. Number two, stay sincere. Do not present a different face at church than you do at home. Each of us struggles with that, I think. Each of us struggle. You know, we have different voices for different people. That's fine. Just 
do not become hypocritical in how you present yourself, uh, showing yourself to be more spiritual to church members than you obviously are to your spouse or your kids. Number three, be ready to suffer in various ways for Christ. Whatever that may mean today. A little ridicule at the office, being barraged by a hostile culture, loss of friendships, perhaps. Remember that Satan is always finding, seeking ways to drag you from Christ, from sincere honesty, from suffering for his name. But Christ has already defeated him. So let us rest in that victory as we remain faithful to his name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to us as your people, for bringing us to you, for cleansing us, and also for consecrating us, for rearranging us on your altar by fire and by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's a painful, difficult process, Lord but it's one that yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So we thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love and for your discipline. We seek it more because we know, Lord, that we are not yet conformed to the image of Christ. We call on you to continue this process, to do whatever it takes to purify us, to help us to know your forgiveness and your favor of us. Lord God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as he taught us to pray. Pray Hebrews chapter 12 for our communion exhortation today. Hebrews 12, once again. Just the first two verses, and then verse 11. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our Lord Jesus faced the attacks of compromise and persecution, just like we saw in our sermon today. He was tempted by Satan to take the easy way, to receive glory and kingdoms, just with a little bow of the knee to Satan, instead of the painful sacrifice of the cross. He was tempted to set aside the cup his father gave him to drink, a cup, a cup that meant arrest and condemnation, flogging and beating, crucifixion, and God-forsakenness. 
when your soul is sorrowful even to death at the crosses and the losses that you endure, that you have or will endure. Remember that Jesus has traveled this road ahead of you. Your painful suffering for Christ is filling up the afflictions of his body, Colossians 1 says. And at the end of the road, though we cannot always see it, it is peaceful fruit, joy set before us, an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses these light and momentary afflictions. The cup you hold shows us the shame and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross atoning for our sin. But the cup also shows us the joy and glory of full favor, forgiveness, fellowship with the Father. He gives us the best of his blessings for us to enjoy as his adopted and beloved sons and daughters. So come, for all things are now ready. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.